From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Forrest Rogers, and this is Podcast in Place, a series about life in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. In November 2020, we interviewed Annie Thomas Landrum about her work as the project manager for the UAA Surge Contact Tracing Team. At the time, before vaccines were widely available, contact tracing was a vital tool in slowing the spread of COVID-19. But as time went on, vaccines became available and new variants caused case counts to skyrocket. We heard less and less about contact tracing. So in this episode, ATME producer Edison Wallace-Moyer speaks with Annie again. She and our contact tracing team continued working through March 2022. Since then, she has gone on to a position as Associate Director of Health Workforce for the Alaska Area Health Education Centers. In their conversation, Annie talks about what happened with contact tracing efforts throughout the course of the pandemic, how COVID had changed the medical profession, and how we will still be feeling the effects of the pandemic for a while. They spoke on May 19th, 2023. When we first spoke with you, it was in November of 2020. So this was pre-vaccine and before we had the Delta and Omicron variants that have caused some of the biggest surges in COVID-19 cases. At the time, you're project manager for the UAA surge contact tracing team. In that first year of the pandemic, it seemed like contract tracing was a vital tool in slowing the spread of the virus. But as time went on and case numbers grew and grew, we heard so much less about it to the point where it seemed like it was obsolete. Could you talk about what happened with contact tracing efforts over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We we definitely ramped up quite a bit right before the Delta surge. um, We the state was kind of um, um, decreasing their efforts, turning it more over to our team as they tried to start to focus on um, some of the other public health concerns that still existed, even though we had COVID. And right when we were going to do that handoff is when the Delta surge really hit. And so instead of ramping down, we ended up ramping up quite a bit. And um, we had our our stats indicate that we probably um, were able to, with contract tracing efforts throughout the state, we were probably able to decrease the number of COVID um, cases by about 20% is what they felt like the overall impact was. And a lot of that definitely did happen um, during Delta and Omicron. I think that um, the, the, the exhaustion of the public with contact tracing efforts and um, and just how everybody was feeling that second year and that third year compared to the first year kind of impacted how much it got talked about because we were all just, you know, everybody was just kind of over it. And so um, it we changed, you know, the way that we needed to build rapport with people and how we talked about it. Um, but we were still, you know, doing tons and tons and tons of cases every day. Um, more by the time we were at peak performance um, for our team in that January um, before we ended contact tracing in March um, with the Omicron um, variant. So we were working. It just uh, it was just a different conversation. <laughs> so I remember when I was listening to your interview, contact tracing seemed like a lot of work. Um, was there any ever a point where you or anyone on your team just felt like giving up or maybe the whole contact tracing effort had become obsolete? 
You know, I think we would have if we hadn't been having such a a special time as a team. Um, you know, it was a really incredible group of people, very random all across the states, you know, around, I think at the, at the, our, our heights, we had 244 contact tracers on our team, people who would never have met otherwise, and people who were very motivated to just help the community. And so I think that we had enough people that when any of us got weary or tired, there was someone there to kind of pick us up and encourage us and say, hey, let's keep going. And we had a lot of really funny stuff built into our team. We, we um, built in more and more sort of team building things like, um, I'm not sure how it got started, but um, my assistant project manager did this cat picture thing at the beginning of every team meeting every day and everyone would send it first they started just sending in their cat pictures and then it was like any pets and then it was like pets and plants and um and so that was really fun some days another one of our um our coordinators um did a dress up day so everybody like would turn on their cameras and they were all like dressed up in you know like something crazy or whatever they um did yoga a few times together we put together a cookbook together um of recipes and so i think we would have gotten discouraged if we weren't building so much community um within our team along the way that's amazing <laughs> So what did you and your team do after contact tracing was no longer a thing? When I found out, I found out over um, Christmas that uh, it was over the Christmas break that um, contact tracing was going to be coming to a close three months later. We had really good notice from our state partners um, and in such a good relationship with them. But I remember... I didn't even want to tell anybody for about a week because I was so sad. Like our team was um, really hitting our stride. We we were being really effective. We were um, we felt like we were making a big difference, and we understood the reasons why we needed to pivot away from contact tracing as as the pandemic you know moved and changed into more of a uh, an endemic thing where it's just kind of part of the landscape of what's going on, like the flu or anything else, but. Um, I personally kind of had to take a couple of days to grieve a little bit because, you know, it felt, um, it felt really sad. And so, you know, as we came down to the end, we tried to do things that, um, were, you know, kind of ways to close it out, to say goodbye. But afterwards, you know, I had started working on the three projects that I'm working on now. They were kind of a natural next step, you know, now that we're moving away from, contact tracing, how do we help the healthcare workers that have been doing all of this, like recover and stay in the professions that they're in, really? How do we keep this from becoming a different kind of public health crisis because we don't have any people to work the jobs? So it was a natural next step, but it took me about three months really to get into being like energized and ready and focused for those projects because, and, and I, I looking back on it now, I realized that there was just kind of a grieving time a little bit and talking to some of my other contact tracers, some of them were on my team um, with the new projects. So that has been really cool. Um, some of them we've kept in touch other ways. There's little pods of them have kept in touch with each other and gone on to do a whole variety of different things. Um, some of them back in their, you know, professions they were in before, some of them in public health areas, you know, um, just really huge variety. But I, I think that the biggest thing 
um, for all of us was that there was a just kind of a mourning period, a saying goodbye period that we had to go through. And that was definitely what we spent those next couple months doing. Um, do you remember your last day in contact tracing? And if so, what was it like? Yep, it was March 31st. And it was, you know, just really bittersweet. We um, we planned uh, some potlucks to happen um, and we were able to do some gathering in person, sometimes for the first time as everybody. Um, one of our team members had written a song and he had us sing it as a round and we did it like we had a couple different satellite um potluck parties going on at the same time so that people in different places. So we had a lot of people gather in Anchorage, but then we had people gather in different places throughout the state, or if they couldn't gather with anybody else, just tune in on, um, on zoom. And so, you know, we all sang together and we all shared like stories together and, um, and just, just tried really hard to hang on to, you know, what, what we had done and where we've been and what impact it had made on our lives kind of one last time. So do you think that contract tracing made a difference? Oh, absolutely. Um, looking at where we had to go during um, the Delta phase, especially when our hospitals um, had to make rationing decisions, which were very, I mean, foreign to all of us and heartbreaking for anyone who was involved in that in any way. I, you know, the, the, the healthcare workers that, um, that were involved in making those decisions, I can't even imagine how difficult that must have been. But if we hadn't had contact tracing, I genuinely believe and the data really backs this up that we would have hit that point much, much sooner. Um, the question was never, is everyone going to get COVID? You know, like everyone pretty much was going to get COVID all the way along. I have had, I think I've had COVID four times. It's it's just how it is. Um, but what we were looking for and what we were trying to do with contact tracing and, and with all the other things that we worked towards was give our system enough time to catch up to the need that we were about to have. Because we had this crisis where all of a sudden, and I don't know if you remember this, but I know for me, it was a huge thing when we all brought in like gloves and masks and anything we had from our homes to donate to the hospitals because nobody had enough PPE to keep up with the amounts of, um, of need that there was. We didn't have, um, we didn't have any kinds of real treatment. We didn't have vaccines. We didn't, you know, any of that stuff. And if you look at even, um, I've taken two different types of treatment for COVID when I've had it, um, the the monoclonal treatment and then Paxlovid this last time and both of those significantly impacted how sick I got and all of that took so much time to develop we just we had to have some time and so when we look at um the the estimate that that our research team was able to put out that we probably pre prevented about 20 percent of the cases um, just that alone is a big deal when you look at, at, at the whole thing. But when you think about what the impact of those 20 cases would have been in times when we had less resources, when we didn't have enough um, protective equipment for our healthcare workers, when we didn't have any vaccines or medicines to treat, um, that 20% really um, translates into pe people that don't make it, people that aren't able to get the care that they need. And so 
I think that contact tracing was able to accomplish exactly what we were looking for. We were able to prevent cases. And more than that, we were able to give the system time to treat treat this big, huge crisis that we had come up. Um, and I think, I think that's a really cool thing to have gotten to be a part of. Do you see contact tracing playing a role in future infectious diseases? Absolutely. You know, I work with the state and um, especially um, HIV STD and the TB, which is where contact tracing has kind of always had a home to hang out in. And so um, those folks are incredible professionals who, who use contact tracing every single day to help our communities um, with um, limiting the spread of a lot of different diseases that really negatively impact our communities. And so it's alive and well right now. I think we've also done a lot. I've had a lot of conversations about, you know, what did we learn um, and where are we um, going to move forward as we look towards the next pandemic? You know, we have a pandemic about every hundred years and it's interesting, like one that's just wide scale. There's more than that actually, but, but wide scale is what we have. So the last one in um, 1918 um, with um, the Spanish flu, that um, when we look at that, it's been so interesting. I've been reading about all the different things that came with that. And the interesting part was, is that a lot of the same things we had happen also happened back then. I thought maybe all the things that happened with us were, you know, like um, because of social media or whatever, you know, the all the debate and like, is contact tracing good? Should we wear masks? Should, you know, all these different things, like, all of the economic unrest and the civil unrest and all this stuff. But actually, if you look back in the late, um, like in that 1918 to the 1920s, they had almost exactly the same stuff that we had. Big debates about masking, um, big, big economic downturn, lots of civil unrest, world war, all of that same stuff. And so it kind of comes, if we look back at it, like a package deal. And so I think that as we, if we take that and we go, okay, we have another one, let's just say for the sake of argument coming up in a hundred years, what can we take from this time that we learned? And I think we learned a whole bunch. What can we take from this time to get ready for that? Because we know, we know what's coming. We know what comes with it. Um, and all along the way between now and then when we have local outbreaks and smaller pandemic, I mean, pandemics are always big, right? But but more, um, less impactful pandemics. Where can we um, really optimize the way that we approach this and how we have the conversation? And I think that that's probably the biggest challenge that we have coming up from my perspective is how do we have the conversation about what we do as a community? How do we have the conversation about um, how do we limit the spread and how do we work together and um, unify ourselves while preserving the things that we all really value in our freedom and 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 being able to make our own decisions? How do we um, act as as a unified citizenship to to help keep people safe? And, and I think that's a good conversation to figure out how to have. So I definitely think it's something that's going to it continues right now to impact us and it's going to continue to impact us for you know, for the long haul. So you said that you think we've learned a lot of lessons from COVID, but I've seen, I've felt a lot of fatigue. I've seen a lot of fatigue. Um, do you think we'll actually be able to learn from this and prepare or are we just too tired of it? 
Wow, that is a fantastic question. You know, um, right now, when I see where everybody's at um, and, and the teams that I work with, there's a lot of um, burnout and people leaving jobs, but talking to the people who are still in the jobs, they're right where you're just describing. Everybody's just tired of it. I remember when we started talking about monkeypox, even for me, I was like, I'm just not up for it. You know, I don't feel like I'm just going to opt out of this one. I'm not, I'm not into it. So I think that a couple of things are happening right now. Um, I think that our old normal, as with any big thing that happens, our old normal kind of got broken. And uh, some things in our systems that were already not working well um, got broken to the point that a lot of people said, you know what, we need to fix this. Like we have to do something about it. And a lot of that comes down to, the way that we invest in um, the, the, the mental health and well-being of our healthcare workers. How do we keep everybody who is actually doing this work well enough to be able to continue to do the work so that when this stuff comes up, we're ready? And I think that's the major question we have to answer right now. Every time the system gets all cattywampus and, and off base, um, it always writes itself eventually. And it will usually, we all, we do, we just return back to what's familiar, what kind of works well. So our new normal is probably going to look a lot like our old normal in a lot of ways, but we have this tiny little sliver um, of a moment where we can be part of the conversation to, to move it to a new place, to evolve to a new place that serves our needs better. And so, um, I think that there will be some things that we don't learn from and that we'll have to do over again. Um, but I think that there are some things that we're carrying forward on an individual basis for sure, um, but then also within our communities. And, and I think that's the way growth works. You know, I would love it if it was just like this great, you know, constant, um, very linear, very orderly process of, of change, but I don't think that's how it works. I think it looks like sort of like a bumblebee, you know, just buzzing around in the air and yeah, it kind of eventually goes up, but there's a lot of back and forth. And um, so I think that um, the things that, that are really happening anyway, for example, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were on all paper contact tracing. So it was all, it was all done on paper. It was not automated. Um, we moved to an automated system and that was a rough go in the middle of a, a crisis for sure. Um, but the direction of how we keep our medical records and how we communicate about that is headed towards an electronics-based system anyway. And this really helped public health to move in that direction and taking some big steps forward. So I think the things with telehealth, with the connectivity of it all, with being able to work in different ways, I mean, being able to telework in general across different um, different um, industries has really skyrocketed. And that was a place that I think we all wanted to go anyway, but we had a chance to move that forward. So I think that there are some good things that were moved forward with contact tracing and with um, with the pandemic and with the changes that we saw. Um, and I think that there's some other things that, you know, you can't, it would be lovely if we were able to learn the optimal number of things from every single thing that we have, but we'll definitely lose some of the things that we could have taken with us. But I think that the things that um, are cohesive with where um, our communities were already going, those things have gotten a big boost. Um, and that as we come out 
um, we're formed by the things that happen to us, you know, um, my great grandparents and, and my, my relatives that have passed on, they who lived through the great depression, you know, kept all of their little butter containers and everything to use. And they, you know, they had ways of going about that seemed really insane to those of us who had not lived through it, but it's because of what they lived through. And I've been thinking a lot about that, about how my perspective now is so much different than it was in 2019. What I feel like is important, what I feel like is critical, um, and, and what my own actual exhaustion feels the need to prioritize is different now. It's kind of like, I'm so exhausted. I can't afford not to do this because of all the things I've learned. So I think that's going to happen too. I think that fundamentally, um, we've, we've had a shift and in an individual level on what's important to us. And, um, as a result, our communities have a different take on, on what's important to us. And I think we're still finding out what that is, but I think going forward, it's going to be new, no matter how it shakes out, it'll, it'll be new. Do you think COVID has changed the medical profession and how people are cared for? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think that telehealth has really gone along, like move forward with some, some big leaps and bounds. We had funding to be able to buy equipment for telehealth that would have taken longer to buy if we hadn't had the pandemic. So that's a big thing. Um, just uh, allowing um, those kinds of, of resources to expand who has access to healthcare is a big deal. I think that we also have seen that um, those who were marginalized in healthcare in general were had huge rates of um, of impact with with um, COVID and, and getting COVID and and their access to resources it became even more obvious. So I think it it created a very clear picture of our health disparities and. Um, Anytime you have a clearer picture of something, it makes it easier to address. And so I would say that in that space, it created an opportunity. Um, I'm really hopeful that what we do with that opportunity is address those health disparities that have come to the surface. Um, but that's that's the next question, right? Is what, what can we do? Um, I think that there are some, some scars that we have that we're gonna have to heal from. Um, I've been a nurse for about 20 years and before the pandemic, you know, medicine and nursing and all of that, we were by and large, it felt like we were pretty neutrally good elements of the community. You know, everybody, you know, kind of felt good about us for the most part and um, not, you know, not a hundred percent, but, but generally um, within um, the pandemic, there, there came about this culture war that I feel like healthcare providers were really kind of caught in the middle of for a lot of different reasons. And most people go into helping professions and healthcare because they want to help people. And so the, the, what they call the pro-social motivation was really fueling their passion and like what made them stay in their job. And during the pandemic, especially during the Delta phase, we saw Kind of an animosity between a lot of the public and the healthcare community um, that I think was really damaging on a number of levels. It was damaging for just the relationships of trust that we have with our patients that are necessary to be able to deliver really quality healthcare. Um, 
And I also think that it was, it was really impactful to the healthcare workers themselves who no longer felt like they were getting those motivation bumps from feeling like they were able to be helpful to people um, on a consistent basis, feeling like people felt helped by what they were doing. And so, you know, I think there's some, there's some repair. I think there's a little bit of a gulf right now between, um, between where we want to be and where we are um, with our unity for what is, um, where can we get facts about healthcare and science that are dependable and that everybody feels good about? How can we um, have patients invested and involved in their care in a way that makes them really feel empowered with the, the best knowledge that we have and understands the limits of of science and that and that we we do our very best with what we have, but sometimes things are going to evolve and change. And that means that what we used to do is not the thing we know works now. And so how can we really come together and unite there? So I think it has changed us. I think it's um it's made us more aware. Um, you don't hear someone coughing in public and have the same neutral responses anymore. You know, everybody has a little bit different feel. Um, so I think we have to wait to see what the what the impacts really are going to be in the end. But I, I think it's a mixed bag. But all of that, whether it's been been great, like the telehealth stuff, um, or whether it's been hard, I think it, it's an invitation. It's an invitation for us to move into the next phase of um, really being able to deliver quality health care to our communities. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much, much more. And all of this is paid work. While we are based in Anchorage, you don't have to be there to work with us. A lot of the work we do is done remotely. So if you are between the ages 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining ACME, Go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Edison's interview with Annie Thomas Landrum. What do you see as the long-term psychological effects of COVID on medical professionals? Well, I mean, you know, I think I quoted in that earlier interview um, that within the UK, within the first three months of the pandemic, three in five nurses wanted to quit the profession altogether. That's what the the research said, which I mean, we weren't even really getting started here in Alaska at that three month mark. And so I think that we've had an exodus um, and are probably still having an exodus of people from the profession. Um, What I'm seeing, and it's, it's really common when you're in fight or flight, um, you know, you're all revved up. If you're responding to an emergency, you're not really feeling, you're just doing. And as a healthcare worker, when I get home is usually when it kind of hits me and it kind of washes over me what I just did. And I think that we're having that on a much grander scale right now. I think that um, we've been in fight or flight for so long and that we um, have come out of it, especially this spring, and um, all of a sudden we kind of feel what this has been and people are still really kind of getting a grip on, wow, 
I did not realize. I did not realize what what it was. I didn't realize what happened. I'll go with healthcare workers throughout the state and just read a timeline of what happened during those three years. And it's heavy. It's heavy. It was heavy putting it together. Just writing it down was kind of like, oh, I'll see a TV show um, that deals with, you know, quarantine or, you know, we couldn't keep filming because of isolation or whatever. And I, it's actually a little too real for me sometimes. I'm a little bit like, oh, it's, it's too much. So um, I think that we have to come out of in this short-term phase, the initial, the initial injury. Um, and then I think that what my desire and what I'm working towards every day is if you have three major motivations for being in healthcare, pro-social helping people, which is, you know, our relationship with the public has been strained and it already was pretty highly correlated with burnout. Cause if you're just wanting to help people and people continue to have needs that you can't fix, um, that's, that's a tough go in terms of feeling good about your work every single day. So pro-social, we already kind of needed to find another way for healthcare workers to want to stay in the field. Um, extrinsic is another motivator, um, with, you know, having more and more, you know, the benefits and money and all of that. And I think that there are sectors within our, our healthcare that really need to look at compensation. That's a really big deal and something that we need to advocate for. I think in the private sector, um, we ha have, however, been looking at what are the limits of what we can do with that? Because we have contracts. I see all the time contracts coming across my phone for way more money than I've ever seen offered because of the shortages. And at some point, um, you can't pay people enough to be in a situation that is not healthy for them. So all we have left really is an in intrinsic motivator, which is basically how healthy is it for me to work in the place that I work? Do I enjoy what I do? Do I enjoy who I do it with? Do I um, feel like I can do my job well? Do I like the work just for itself? All those kinds of things. And I think that's really where we're going to have to focus. And the long-term effects of whether or not we keep people in the profession or not I think that is going to come down to how well we work on those intrinsic factors. Are we making it a healthy place for healthcare workers to be? Traditionally, we've run our systems off of, you know, we had more work than we had people, but everybody was going to give more than just their full time. You know, they were going to give extra all the time. And I think that we've come to a place where everybody doesn't have extra to give all the time. And we have a new generation of workers who I think really have much stronger grasp of a work-life balance and really want to be able to say, hey, I, I want to give what I need to work, but I also want to give to the rest of my life and I want some balance there. And so I think that the long-term effects are going to really come down to how well can we start to meet the needs? How well can we start to be really realistic about what it takes to continue to um to do this work and to keep people um, from being burned out and experiencing compassion fatigue? How can we sow more wellness into these spaces? And I don't know the answer. Um, I think it can go a lot of ways. And for a lot of different people, it will probably have different answers. But um, again, I think it's a huge invitation. So pandemics often get lost in time. Like I learned about the Great Depression and the World Wars long before I learned about the Spanish flu. And coming out of this one, do you, you said that you still feel like it's too real. Do you think that eventually COVID will take a larger part of pop culture or do you think it'll be lost like other pandemics have been? You know, 
I don't, I don't know. Like it's such, it's, it's, it's been immortalized a lot in a lot of our pop culture references right now. And, and our connectivity, I think it does make that question a little bit different. Um, it is interesting with the rise of, of AI and deep fakes and everything, you know, we've had challenges to other historic events where there wasn't that capability, you know, even people challenging the Holocaust and things that are very well known um, and very well documented with pictures and things at the time um, that now they there's a lot of um, skepticism about could it have really been that bad? Could this have really happened? Because I think that we want to glamorize the past a little bit. You know, I do that with myself all the time. You know, I, sometimes I thought I wanted to have more kids and I really glamorized what what those first few months were like. And then I had a kitten for one night and had to get up once. And I was like, oh no, I remember it's that bad. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do it. So I think as humans, we tend to kind of like want to make the past look a little shinier than it is. Um, so I think that that will probably happen. Um, I think that it'll, it's really going to be interesting with, with all of the, the, the deep fake questions and all of that, that we have coming up. I don't know how that's going to change how we look at history and how we, um, how we classify that, but I think it's going to be really, really fascinating to, to see it. And I think it will depend on, you know, um, how much, you know, what happens in the next few years. I think that the, the flu kind of did get overrun by some of those other like really huge crises, which interesting, Lee, it was a precipitating factor for that. Like it, all of that stuff, it kind of like knocked a domino over and it was like, all these things happened and we didn't see that till we looked back. But so it's possible that that COVID will kind of get lost as a, as a, a domino pusher. Um, but I don't know, you know, I mean, we've, we've, the connectivity of it, I think makes that question one um, that's gonna be answered in a way that's never been answered before. How do you think COVID got to be as big as it was? Well, I mean, <laughs> do you mean for um, in terms of the number of cases or the public response? Let's go with both. Okay, awesome. So in terms of the number of cases, I think that if you look at how connected our world is, um, you know, if pandemics were able to get around back in 1918, when you had to like, have a very long, not very many people traveled relative to the number of people who travel now. It took a really long time to get there. Like it was not the same world at all. Um, and now everybody goes everywhere. People from every country go everywhere. So you can hear one day that, you know, something's in Africa and it can be here the next day. It could have been here two weeks before we heard about it, you know, being in Africa in the first place because we just have a lot more connectivity. And so, um, I think that the connectivity of our world, um, it was COVID is a massively efficient carrier. Like it is, it is massively good at getting into, um, into our systems. I was laughing the other day. It kind of feels like it kind of just goes through all the different disease processes and just picks up all its favorite little things, you know, kind of like, Oh, I like that. And I was thinking, gosh, 
wouldn't it be cool if COVID put that towards something productive? You know, like, <laughs> that'd be awesome because you're super good at it. Um, so I think the efficiency of the virus itself, it's an extremely efficient disease. And when you look at things that are, the reason that things are so dangerous when they come from bats um, is because bats can have things like they have crazy high temperatures. And so one of the ways that our bodies kill things um, is it raises, we get a fever and it raises the temperature and it can kill off those viruses. But things that grow in bats can survive in temperatures that are a lot higher because bats have temperatures that get a lot higher, a lot higher than ours do. So it can't burn it off in the same way. And so it's really effective in being able to stick around. It kind of is like, yeah, you think you're going to get rid of me, but probably not. And, and so that's kind of, so that those were really big, um, big, big things. Um, from a, from a, um, a public response, I think that our connectivity, um, the, the global nature of our population and just where our, um, daily interactions are, it put before us a, a an opportunity to respond to a healthcare emergency that was different than anything we've ever seen. Um, we had an opportunity to keep more people safe than we have in the past. We had the opportunity to help less people die than we have in the past. And so I think that the desire was let's do that and let's do that to the best of our ability. Um, did we try things that, you know, in the end probably didn't have much of an effect? Sure, we did. But sometimes when you're in the midst of a huge global experiment with something that we don't know what makes it better and what makes it worse, that's what we have to do together. It was almost like we were all participating in the research um, and we didn't necessarily all sign up for it. And so I get why that was really frustrating. But I think that um, the efficiency of the disease and the um, and the connectivity of our communities um, made it a an imminent threat, and the abilities that we had to reroute our daily lives in an effort to maximize our resources and build up our ability to combat the virus, um, I think is why we mounted such a big response. Do you think that we will begin to approach health crises in a global way thanks to COVID? You know, I don't know. I, I, it's, a, it's a great question. Again, you know, when we look at what happened um, through different administrations during the pandemic and how, you know, um, during one administration, we withdrew from the WHO and the next one, we immediately went back into the WHO. Um, we saw the rise of nationalism in a lot of different countries. You know, Brexit had happened just, you know, right, right in that period, right just before. And um, it, it, I think that it falls into a larger discussion of how do we want to function as an incre increasingly connected world. And I don't think that we have um, answered that question by any means at all. And I think how we answer that bigger question is what is going to kind of fuel um, the answer to that more specific question of how will we respond. Um, and there's already international efforts to um, create um, ways, preemptively create ways to combat different um, 
uh, different viruses to be able to look and see, you know, what's coming up and how can we start to develop vaccines early so that we can have a faster rollout. The reason that we were able to roll out vaccines for COVID as fast as we were is that it was working off of technology that had been in the works for a very long time. And so um, there's already international collaborations. I think those will continue to, to grow. And I think that's really, really important. Um, and the rest, I think, will probably ebb and flow. But I will say that um, the general trajectory over uh, pretty much all of human history has been towards more connectivity, more unification of, of our responses, more um, unification of the way that we talk about things, the way that we consider things. And so while I don't know the path that it will take specifically, I can say that from my perspective, the trend has been towards more unification than not. So I think that we will continue to see um, gradually more and more cooperation internationally. Do you think we're back to normal or a new normal? No. I do not yet. Um, I think that this spring is really where we're starting to feel the effects of what happened. Almost like, again, if you got in a car crash and right after, you know, I was in a car crash, I couldn't even tell what was happening. I couldn't feel anything in my body right afterwards. And a little while later, I started to feel my neck pain. And um, I, I couldn't feel it right before, before that because of all the adrenaline. And I think that everybody's in a different stage, but as a, as a community, I think that we've been in the adrenaline part, right? And then we were in the pandemic and then even right after like last summer, everybody wanted to do everything and, and, and get caught up and, you know, and, and all of that. And so I think we try to do a lot of that, but then like winter hit and it's been such a long winter here in Alaska. Um, and I was really concerned about what it was going to look like in the spring um, because we have high rates of depression and seasonal affective disorder and suicide and all of that. And in the spring is where it's really um, a risk because people get more energy, but not enough to really feel good, just enough to, to take some tough actions. And so I think that um, we're right now in the middle of a lot of people really feeling what the effects are, what the effects have been on themselves personally, what the effects have been on um, of losing our support systems. A lot of us, you know, we couldn't not have really hard conversations with our family and friends about things that maybe we didn't all agree on. Are we gathering? Are we not? Are we, you know, are we vaccinating? Are we not? Are we wearing masks to get together? Are we not? And um, it caused a lot of rifts and a lot of brokenness in a lot of families, in addition to all the civil unrest and all the worldwide stuff that was happening that everybody had different opinions on. And so um, I think that we are still in the midst of kind of looking around at what has been hurt and damaged inside ourselves and our communities. And we're starting to try to find a way back but I think we're pretty tired and I think it's going to take some time. You know, it seems like when I look at the twenties, the 1920s, you know, it's, it's funny now to think about how it was all either like heavy duty, like, like no alcohol, nothing, very strict, very straight life, or everything is awesome. And the flappers and, you know, like going crazy mm -hmm. makes more sense now because everybody was just trying to regain some control in their life. You know what I mean? And some people found it in really being rigid and some people found it in letting it all go. But you think about that whole decade, that whole decade 
was real extreme as people tried to find their new normal. And we did get there. It was actually the wars that actually kind of brought us back, unified us and like set it forward. And I hope we don't have to get there that this way again. But um, I do think that it's going to take some time and that for a while, if we find in ourselves some extremeness, if we find in ourselves like a lack of being able to be real balanced, I think that's, I think we have to have some grace for that. I think that we have been out of control for a long time and that there's a lot of uncertainty around us and that we have to be really kind to ourselves in how we, um, how we look at the things that we need right now, you know, and maybe we don't need them forever. You know, right, right now, my family's using a lot of paper plates because that's what gets us through the day. You know, it's not the best thing for the environment. It's not my favorite thing in the world. We're not going to do it forever. But for right now, that's what we need to be able to keep our life running. And so, you know, I think that during this time, we just have to be really kind. What are the little things that help me to be able to be plugged into the big things? Um, and can I let myself have those? So we've talked a lot about lessons that we've learned from the pandemic do you think we're ready for another one? No, <laughs> I do not. Uh, I think if we had a new pandemic right now, our resources are at a pretty depleted space. You know, I, I, I think we would be hard pressed, um, not just physically with the resources, but I think emotionally and mentally, um, we would be pretty hard pressed. Um, I was very glad that monkeypox um, did not evolve in the way that it could have. Um, and, you know, we still don't know what the next versions of COVID will be like. You know, we're always kind of, it's a little bit like in the, the, the aftershocks in the earthquake in 2018. You know, I didn't realize the, the earthquake was bad, but the aftershocks were almost worse because you just felt it hit you over and over and, and you never knew was this going to be another big one I mean everybody said that the aftershocks could be bigger than the original one and you're like well that's not cool like I didn't okay and like I thought in our animals and my kids and myself and you know like you were just constantly like on edge and so um I'm hopeful that we don't have to have an aftershock that is that mounts the kind of, of, of needed response, um, that, that COVID, um, in this, you know, last few years has been, but I also think that whatever is ahead, um, one of the big takeaways I have is that we as humans are resilient people. And as Alaskans, we do what we have to do. And it's maybe not always going to be pretty or graceful or perfect. Um, but at the end of the day, we're going to be there for each other. And I think that's a really, I didn't grow up in Alaska. It's, it's my adopted home, but I'm really thankful for the way that we, we come together. And so, no, I don't think we're ready, but at the same time, we're Alaskans. And if we, if we need to do it, we will. Um, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to mention? No, this has been fantastic. I absolutely love the time that I get to spend with you guys. You're amazing and fantastically cool. You guys are so incredibly skilled and um, and professional in the way that you do these interviews. So I'm just honored to have gotten to, to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. It was absolutely amazing to talk to you. Thank you.
That was At Me producer Edison Wallace-Moyer speaking with Annie Thomas-Landrum. Be sure to check out the episode's page on our website where we have included an extra section of their conversation, where Annie talks about COVID-related work her organization Managing Me Enterprises does. You've been listening to Podcast in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckenghost with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including the Alaska Community Foundation. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of our funders. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our program and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Anime. Just go to patreon.com slash Alaska Teen Media Institute. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review for our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There, you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Forrest Rogers. Thanks for listening.